0: Our guest today is Roy Shapira, Associate Professor at IDC Herzliya. We'll be discussing his article, A New Caremark Era, Cause and Consequences, which is forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Roy, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Roy, this article examines the causes for and the implications of what you call the new Caremark era. But first things first, what was the old Caremark era?
1: The Cliff Notes version is that when we say Kermark duties or Kermak litigation, we refer to an iconic Delaware court decision from the mid-1990s, which uh, shaped director oversight duties. So to, to simplify what the Kermak decision did was to shift board oversight duties from reactive to proactive. You can't just sit there as a director and deal with problems as they come to you. Uh, you rather have to install a system that monitors compliance risks in real time and reports them back. But At the same time that the Kermak decision raised the bar regarding how directors should behave, uh, it tried hard to ensure that future courts don't overstep. The Kermak court, Chancellor Allen, recognized that it would be almost too tempting for judges, for all of us really, to come and say post-mortem, after something bad happened, that directors should have found out about it earlier and stopped it. So the Kermak court said, we're not getting into the question of what directors should have known, We will instead focus only on instances where we know that they knew. So it's not what they should have known, it's what they actually knew. We would impose liability only when we have indications of bad faith, of willful ignorance, of directors consciously disregarding their duties. And the operational effect of this guidance was that for 20 years, if you were a shareholder bringing a claim against directors for failure of oversight, it would be almost impossible for you to survive a motion to dismiss. Because as a shareholder ch- from the outside, challenging directors for lack of oversight, and you now have to plead facts about what they knew and, and when they knew it, their awareness, their intentions. And you have to plead those facts before you gain access to discovery and the positions. Yet, this is exactly the kind of allegations, the kind of facts that you will be able to substantiate in most cases only if you did have access to discovery and depositions, only if you have access to internal company documents. So as a result, Kermak litigation quickly turned into an endless parade of cases thrown out already in the motion to dismiss. So up until 2019, this is where we were. This is the uh, Kermak litigation of old, the old Kermak era, as you called it, where we had ambitious board oversight duties on paper as a standard of conduct, yet in effect, it was very hard to hold directors accountable for failures of oversights. And scholars were calling Kermart a toothless tiger doctrine.
0: Before 2019, we have a toothless tiger, as you say, and now you argue that we are at the dawn of a new era. Yeah. What's changed on the ground? What's changed in the courts? What's changed with litigants? How have we transitioned to this new era?
1: What happened in 2019? So to me, the, the new Kermark era, as I call it, uh, started in 2019 with a decision by uh former Chief Justice of Delaware Supreme Court, Leo Strine, in the uh, Blue Bell ice cream case, the Martian versus Barnhill case. So that case started with a food safety crisis. One of the ice cream lines uh, became contaminated with listeria and causing uh, three deaths, massive product recalls, and what have you. And shareholders brought a claim of a failure of oversight. And the Chancery Court routinely dismissed this case, because this is what we do with Kermar cases, right? Because uh, sure, there were bad outcomes at the company level, but where's the evidence that links the bad outcomes to bad intentions on the director's part? There's no evidence. Yet when Chief Justice Trine cut this case in appeal, he said, sure, there's no evidence of someone reporting to the board about food safety problems, but come to think of it, when I read the board minutes, I don't see any discussion of food safety whatsoever. And that to me, says Strine, suggests a failure of effort. You, you fail to try and keep yourself informed. You fail to ask that people report to you about food safety. And Strine added something that in retrospect would prove key to this resurgence to the new Kermak era. And that's the notion of mission critical. If you're sitting on a board of a monoline company, meaning a company that all it does is one product, it manufactures ice cream you would think that food safety should be on your agenda every now and then, right? This is the corporate law version of the uh, you-had-one-job internet meme, right? So food safety is clearly something that you should make an effort to collect information on. And then following the Bluebell case in 2020, we started seeing other karma claims do what once was considered impossible and survive the motion to dismiss. So to hone in a bit more on the what-changed part in your question, it's not necessarily a change in the standard per se, which is still a high bar. It's rather a change in Delaware Court's willingness to let these fail of oversight's claims proceed. And I think that this willingness is reflected in two reoccurring themes that I write about or two hooks that the courts use. So first, there's the mission-critical theme that we just discussed. So the courts are more willing to apply, you could call it, enhanced oversight duties regarding specific compliance risks, those that touch the core of the company's business. So say that Andrew is a director at a drug company that has a single drug in the pipeline and your company's success obviously depends on the development of that drug. You better make sure you better make sure that you meet the regulatory requirements that the company meets the regulatory requirements for developing this drug. This is mission critical compliance. And the second theme is the the dog that didn't bark theme. So in the old Kermark era, if we had no documentation of the board discussing a thorny issue, it would probably lead to the case against them being dismissed, because we supposedly have no indication that directors knew about the thorny issue in real time. But in today's uh, new Caremark era, if we have no documentation, it may serve as the pleading stage inference against the directors, and the case will proceed.
0: You say that Delaware judges have become more open to Caremark claims, and as a result, these cases are less commonly being thrown out on a motion to dismiss. What explanations have been offered for why Caremark cases are starting to survive those motions? Do you buy those explanations? And if not, what do you see as maybe some of the real explanations for that change?
1: For starters, we have to remember that this is a real-time development. There aren't many developed theories of what explains the change. Uh, For me, that's the advantage and the disadvantage of trying to write a paper explaining changes that just happened or that are still happening. But one theory that we used to hear in early 2020, but we don't anymore, is that it's just a coincidence, right? It's just a congruence, a rare coincidence, a congruence of cases with extreme circumstances, and it isn't indicative of oversight duties going forward. But I think that by now, or sometime after the fourth successful Kermit case, it was 2020, it became clear that it's not a coincidence, right? We can strike that off. And another theory, which isn't what I highlight in my paper, but I think is a plausible theory, is that the change in karma litigation is Delaware court's way of reacting to broader changes in the environment that corporations operate in today. We keep hearing that. And you also had on the podcast discussions of corporate purpose and things like that. So there are increased societal demands from business corporations nowadays and the lower courts want to make sure that corporate law plays its part. We saw this kind of theory being applied in the past, the theory of Delaware courts reacting to co-opt the potential public backlash with other corporate practices, such as executive pay and what have you. What I highlight in my paper is a different explanation. So when you ask me what happened or why now, uh, my answer is basically two words. It's Section 220. And Section 220 is the section from Delaware's corporate law that governs shareholders' right to information from the company. Shareholders have a qualified right to inspect their company's books and records. And this right, like I said, is qualified. It has certain conditions. So in particular, you have to show proper purpose. Why do you want to investigate these documents? Do you have a credible basis that merits an investigation? And you also have to show permissible scope. You won't get access to all the company documents, only those that are necessary and essential to meet your proper purpose. Now, this Section 220 or this information rights that I just mentioned they were there all the time. They're not new. What changed is that in recent years, the Delaware courts started liberalizing these requirements, both in terms of whether to grant access to internal documents and in terms of what internal documents to provide. So not just formal board materials, but also informal materials such as emails or even social media messages exchanged between board members or between them and their advice. So now, Active shareholders and plaintiff lawyers, or the most serious ones at least, have a very potent pre-filing investigatory tool at their hands. They can use it as pre-filing discovery. It allows them to plead with particularity facts about what the directors knew and when they knew it, which in turn helps them survive the Kermak pleading hurdle, the, the hurdle that once seemed like mission impossible. So in other words, my point is that the resurgence in director oversight duties is connected to and somewhat driven by the resurgence in shareholder rights to information from the company. We have a combination of courts' increased willingness that we talked about earlier, with plaintiffs' increased capacity, increased ability to provide such indications of bad faith. And one of the reasons why I think that this trend is here to stay is that the development, that development in shareholder rights to information is not strictly a Kermak litigation. It's not strictly an oversight litigation thing. It was actually spurred by another important development elsewhere in corporate law, namely in the deal litigation. So the plot thickens. So that's a topic for a whole different podcast. So I won't elaborate on it now. I have a separate project on it. But in a nutshell, the idea is that decisions such as Cohen or MFW put the honors on an informed shareholder vote on the deal. And that in turn made it necessary to allow aggrieved shareholders, so to speak, to examine after the fact whether all the material information was provided to them in real time before they voted. And the courts responded to that shortly after they handed decisions such as Cohen and MFW in, uh, around 2015. The lower court started handing out decisions in Section 220 cases that allow shareholders to use Section 220 more broadly to investigate failures of disclosure, to plead around a Cohen defense or to plead around an MFW defense. So we're now in 2021 in a world whereby corporate law, to a large extent, operates through Section 220. So this is a recalibrated mode of corporate law litigation. Everything is front-loaded. All the important stuff happens pre-filing. And if we're back to our topic applied here, shareholders who wish to investigate failures of oversight can more easily now gain access to board communications and show one of the two. They can show either that look directors knew about red flags and they didn't know enough to stop the problem, or they can show that directors never even discussed the
0: critical issue, which means that they
1: breached their duties.
0: Let's say that we're in a new caremark era. Some might ask, what does that matter if directors fell in their caremark duties? If a plaintiff survives, a motion dismiss directors aren't going to pay out of pocket. Is there anything to be gained from this new Kirmark era? What would you say to that question? So that's a classic
1: pushback. The pushback here is don't get too excited about more Kerma claims surviving the motion to dismiss because it's just a motion to dismiss. Come back to me when the cases are ultimately decided in favor of the plaintiffs and directors are being forced to pay for their oversight failures. And then I'll share your excitement. That's the potential objection. And I'm glad that you raised it because it gives us a chance to discuss how Delaware corporate law works more generally, how it shapes behavior, how it deters. Because in corporate law in general, regardless of the specific context that we're discussing today, the compliance context, directors practically never pay out of pocket. And so it's hard. You can't measure deterrence solely on the basis of sanctions imposed in verdicts coming after a full trial because there are very few full trials and even fewer sanctions. And deterrence rather comes from the process of paying settlements, and maybe more importantly, planning how to avoid having to go through discovery and depositions and all the non-legal costs of litigation. The stress, the embarrassment, the time, the potential hit to your reputation. A couple of concrete examples that I provide in the paper of how the new Kermak era is likely to shape director behavior going forward and in fact already did. For example, part of corporate law's effect on behavior comes from the memos that lawyers send their clients explaining how the clients should behave going forward. And I detail in the paper how each new Kermark case that survived the motion to dismiss created a wave of law firm memos calling on boards, for example, to place compliance issues on the agenda or calling on boards to make sure that deliberations are being properly recorded, proper documentation, proper paper trail, and so on. So it already had an effect on the legal advice that directors get. Another part of corporate law's effects on behavior is through the um, non-legal cost of going through the early stages of litigation, the discovery, the positions, trial, the reputational cost, which is my favorite thing. And you don't want details about your misbehavior dug out and made public for others to see. And I provide in the paper several colorful examples, such as around the Facebook Cambridge Analytica corporate law case. So examples of how the expansion of Section 220 has increased these reputational non-legal costs for failure of oversight. Because now you have internal email communications or colorful judicial comments, judicial scolding coming out, and the media is quick to pick it up and quick to report on it. So the new Kermak-era cases increase the potential reputational Sanctions for fail of oversight. They change, they affect the scope and the tone of media coverage of these failures. They create reputation risk. In fact, this is why when we evaluate the new Kermak era, I think that we shouldn't count just the three or four or five cases that survived the motion to dismiss. We should also factor all the successful Section 220 actions, the preliminary actions filed in preparation for potential subsequent Kermak cases. Because even these preliminary Section 220 actions, often come with negative exposure, negative publicity, damning information coming out about your failures of oversight. And that, in itself, shapes behavior.
0: What does a new Kiermark era mean for corporate governance and compliance? To understand what it means for compliance, I guess we need to take a step
1: back from what we've been discussing in the recent cases and recognize that Corporate law litigation, regardless of what we think about it, regardless of the new Kermak era, the old Kermak era, it's likely to continue playing a not huge part in the larger compliance puzzle. Compliance is not just about corporate law. So policymakers attempt to affect corporate behavior to, to curb corporate illegality for many channels. And we can think of criminal prosecutions or encouraging the implementation of internal compliance systems, or what we've been discussing here, enlisting the help of these private enforcers, these bounty hunters, such as plenty of lawyers, through derivative actions. And the important thing to understand for me is that when you evaluate each mechanism, don't evaluate it in isolation. Don't evaluate it in a vacuum. You rather need to evaluate it based on how it operates in tandem with the other mechanisms. And each of these mechanisms, like we discussed, uh, criminal prosecutions, internal compliance, corporate law litigation, each of these mechanisms suffers from its own serious flaws. Yet what matters is whether each mechanism's advantages can balance the other mechanism's blind spots or not. And in the paper, I provide indications that the recent trend in karma litigation is is a step or several steps in the right direction in that respect. For example, it promotes individual accountability, which criminal prosecution has found very hard to do. Another example, it promotes upward flows of information flowing up to the board and proper documentation inside the organization, which internal compliance programs historically failed at doing, and so forth. So my claim in that sense, I think is modest. It's that this revamped Section 220-driven mode of Kermak litigation, however imperfect you think it is, it balances nicely some of the holes, some of the flaws of uh, the other institutions that combat corporate illegality. It's a
0: good combination. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the article?
1: I guess to me, there are two key takeaways. The first one is perhaps more specific, and it concerns the relationship between corporate law and compliance. And I think that listeners of this podcast, they they know that compliance has become a key, perhaps the key, corporate governance issue. And we have, like we just mentioned, mounting societal concerns about corporate conduct, we have mounting regulatory requirements, we have mounting compliance costs, hundreds of billions are being spent constantly on internal compliance programs. So I think by now everybody agrees that it's crucial to get corporate compliance. Yet up until recently, corporate law had relatively little to say on it. It played a very limited role in holding directors accountable for their compliance failures. And many of our fellow corporate legal scholars viewed corporate antisocial behavior as a matter for other laws and regulations rather than as a matter of an internal corporate law issue. The takeaway point here is that stopped being the case, that clearly stopped being the case with the new Kermakera. So this string of cases, whether you agree with the way I interpret them and explain them or not, you can't ignore them. You can't ignore this resurgence in oversight duty. Corporate law is now on the field and it's playing a role. And the second takeaway is a broader point on how Delaware law functions when it when it is at its best. So the second takeaway is like extrapolating from what we saw in the oversight duty litigation context to corporate law more generally, or even to litigation and civil procedure more generally. Because to me, the old Kermak era, as you put it, illustrates the perhaps too differential to managers version of Delaware corporate law. But in the revamped mode, by contrast, Kermak litigation is the best version of lower corporate law. It's about expert judges effectively micromanaging the process of litigation. They stagger the cost of discovery. We have more targeted, more pinpointed discovery as a function of the information asymmetries, as a function of the credibility of the allegations at hand. They make sure that the bounty hunters, the activist shareholders or the plaintiff attorneys, they get their bounty only when they contribute to the broader goal only when they contribute to shareholders as a group or to broader societal interests. Normally, in litigation, we wouldn't want judges micromanaging the process. Because it's a recipe for mistake and administrative cost. But this is where Delaware's comparative advantage shines in having these experienced expert judges who know, uh, perhaps it's an inappropriate metaphor, who know where the bodies are buried, if they are buried, or know when there's a need to further probe matters. So To me, they struck the right balance here. So from this vantage point, it's the right balance between deference to business decision
0: and accountability for oversight failures. Our guest today has been Roy Shapira, Associate Professor at IDC Herzliya. We've discussed his article, A New Kiermark Era, Cause and Consequences, which is forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Roy, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.